Well, my name is Joy Qualls. I'm on the teaching team here at Reve. I uh, live in Orange County, California, which sounds better than it actually is. Um, it's sunny and, and, and getting warmer there, uh, but um, it's the world's most expensive place to live, so it's countered, uh, countered with that. But I get to come to Colorado and have seasons and snow and mountains and all the, all the beautifulness that... Uh, that comes from the Mountain West, and, and I love to get to um, come and spend time with you a few times a year. But, but I have to be honest with you, um, uh, I kind of have avoided this subject today. Um, we're right at the end of this series on seeing the invisible, but really what this series is ultimately about is that challenge that we all have when we feel like God is silent, when we feel as if there's a distance between us and the space that God is inhabiting, and, and what do we do when that invisible space is there? And, and we plan these um, teachings early in the year, looking throughout the whole year, and, and I knew this was the Sunday that I was coming. And yet I would text Sam and I would say, what's this Sunday about again? And he'd send me the link, and I would look at it, and I would say, yep, I'm not dealing with that. And then a couple of weeks later, I'd text him again and say, I'm coming in a couple of weeks. Got the plane ticket now. What are we talking about? He'd send me the link, and I would look at it, and I would say, yeah, not dealing with that. Because oftentimes, even the things that God gives us um, to share and to study are not really always about the people you're sharing with. Sometimes they really get to what's going on in your own world, and we don't want to deal with those things. And so I don't come to you this morning as an expert. I don't come to you this morning as somebody who's got it all figured out. In fact, I come to you as somebody who is hanging out in exile this morning. And so if you feel as if you are in exile, if you're wandering through the wilderness, then we are all in good company because I just come as a fellow traveler with you this morning. The truth of the matter is, is that I could use this message as much as it is that I'm delivering it. Because I can't tell you how many times in the last year I have called out to the Lord and said, how long? How long? How long do we have to stay in this place? How long does it feel like the challenges are going to be here? How long? And, and it feels as if when we say those prayers that we should get corrected, right? That, that, that it's unfair to ask God those things, that it is um, a lack of faith, it's a lack of trust when we cry out to him in that way. But the good news is, is that we are in good company because throughout the Psalms, you see David crying out to the Lord literally with those words, how long? And he's the king. He's the man after God's own heart. He's the one who was chosen as a young child. We hear from, from leaders like Moses and Abraham, how much is, is this going to take? How much more do we have to endure? And so we are in good company when we say those prayers. But we also have to remember that sometimes God has actually answered us. And he's answered us by placing us in a season of exile. 
And that doesn't fit my super comfortable, middle-class American existence. I want freedom. I want choice. I want to be the master of my own destiny. So what does it look like when God says, I've placed you here? And what does it look like to live victorious when, in fact, God has answered, and his answer is, I want you to stay here for a little while. What does that look like? I can tell you, not only does it not fit my middle-class American existence, it doesn't fit my escapist Pentecostal existence. Because I was brought up that all of this was about getting out of here, not staying here. So what does victory look like when God says, I put you here, and you're going to stay here until? What does until look like? Well, if it wasn't bad enough that I was avoiding everything about this subject and and what it was that we were going to talk about, then I got to the scriptures, and it got even more comical because... David, I'm not sure if I'm getting this. All the technology things are happening this morning. There we go. This, is the, this was one of the verses. And if ever we have created a hallmark saying out of Scripture, it is this verse, right? Weddings, births, high school, college graduations, right? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And we love this. We wear it like a blanket around us that says, God wants me to be rich. And he wants me to be happy. And he wants me to never have trouble. And he wants me to never deal with difficulty. Isn't that fantastic? And we, and we plop it on plaques. And we put it on cards. And we give it to people at these really amazing moments in their lives. And they think, well, look at that. I managed to graduate from high school. And so great, God wants to prosper me and never to harm me. And all of a sudden you walk into adulthood and it's one challenge after another. And then the student loans come due. And then the mortgage comes due and you're like, Lord, that card that they gave me at graduation said, the plans you had were to prosper me. And I think we really misuse this scripture in a way that's dangerous to our mindset for when we enter into those how long, O oh Lord, moments. Because what, we, what we're really saying is, I want you to prosper me. I want no harm to come to me. I want the good, easy life. I want to be on the first train out. I don't want to have to endure. And so I have to be honest, I kind of almost rolled my eyes when I saw that this was the passage. Because I thought, I don't want yet another feel good, pat ourselves on the back. It's all going to be okay when we get out of this place. Message that says, at the end of the day, God is mostly concerned with my comfort and my happiness. Because he's not. And so what we have to do is we have to back up and we have to take a look at who Jeremiah actually is and what's happening in this place. 
So Jeremiah is a prophet of Israel. So the, the children of Israel have occupied the promised land. They have stopped their wandering. They have had kings and leaders. And they have decided that they have their own way of doing things. And so along comes Jeremiah, who is appointed at birth. We know he's a true prophet because he begs God not to be the prophet. That's, that's one of the tests of who, who, who is the truthful prophet, is the one whom God says, you are the prophet. And the prophet says, no, not me. Please don't let it be me. Pick anybody else but me. And God says, no, you're the one. And so Jeremiah exists in a space where he's saying to the people, you've gotten too comfortable. In fact, what he's actually saying to the people is, you think this is about your prosperity. You think this is about your comfort. You think this is about you being in control of everything. You need to turn your hearts back to me. And if you don't, if you don't recognize that I am God, if you don't recognize that I'm the one who has your best interest at heart, if you don't recognize that I'm the one who loves you with an everlasting love, here's what's going to happen. And the people say, yeah, 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 Jeremiah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jeremiah says, no, listen, the enemy is coming and it's going to look like the Babylonians and they are going to conquer you and you are going to be in occupation for 70 years. And the people say, yeah, 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 Jeremiah, sure thing. Okay, but we're the greatest nation. We got it all figured out. We've had the kings. We built the temple. We did everything that you said we were going to do. So yeah, 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 Jeremiah. Hey, no problem. We can worship however we want to worship. We can be in charge of our own destiny. No big deal. But Jeremiah is also called the weeping prophet because in this, he takes no pleasure in the message that he's delivering. One, because he foreshadows his own people's destruction. He foreshadows that the temple that was David's and Solomon's, that God had promised them, the place where God inhabited and his presence was known was going to be destroyed. But Jeremiah also has a deep sadness about his own shortcomings. He doesn't feel like he's powerful enough because the people won't deliver him. He doesn't feel like he's eloquent enough because the people won't listen to him. Some people, some scholars actually look at Jeremiah and think of him a bit as a foreshadowing of Christ. Who he was was known as a child, just like it was for Jesus. He brings a countercultural message that's not one that the people want to hear and the people reject him. He's considered a political heretic. He's imprisoned. He's beaten. He predicts the destruction of the temple, just like Jesus would, because it was never about the temple in the first place. And ultimately, Jeremiah is rejected by his own people. And this is where we find ourselves in chapter 29. And so Jeremiah writes a letter to the people of Israel. And this is what the letter says. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. So guess what? Everything Jeremiah said was going to happen happens. 
And all of a sudden, the people find themselves conquered by their enemy. And they're now slaves again. Not literal slaves in the same way that they were in Egypt, but they are no longer in charge of their own destiny. They are no longer leading their own lives. And instead of the leadership of the people and the, and the religious leaders and the social leaders of the nation of Israel recognizing this moment and repenting and begging God for forgiveness, no, they cozy up to the Babylonians. I'm like, okay, what do we have to do? What do we have to do to make this partnership work? And so the leadership is in disarray because they're no longer leading in the ways, even after conquering, They're no longer seeking God for the ways that he wants them to lead. But instead, they've cozied up to the Babylonian leaders and are like, hey, how can we make this work? And Jeremiah says, no, 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 no. Here's what God has to say. I exiled you to Babylon. I put you in this place. And so here's how this is going to go down. I want you to build homes and I want you to plan to stay for a while. I want you to plant gardens and eat the food they produce. I want you to marry and have children, and I want you to find spouses for your children. I want you to multiply and not dwindle away. You see, if you cozy up too much to your captors, your identity as children of God is going to disappear. But I don't want you to battle against your captors either. Because I want you to accept that this place that I've put you is for your own good. And so I want you to have a life here. It's not to join hands with your captors. It's to live separately, but it's to live and not to die in this place. And then he says, I want you to work for the prosperity of the city in which you live. You see, he repeats again in this letter, 70 years. Because the people that said, okay, we got conquered, but God will deliver us. Not what Jeremiah said, but the letter says again, 70 years. Here's where it's gonna be. And so there they are, taken away from the land of promise, Their leaders compromised. The temple that God inhabited destroyed. And yet God is saying to them, hey, live, build houses, have children, continue to thrive because if you dwindle, that will really be your destruction. So he wants us when he places us in these positions not to simply look at it as punishment, but that when he comes along in a couple more verses and he says, for I know the plans I have for you, what he's saying to them is this. At the end of the day, what I am here for is you. And until you become satisfied that I am enough, until you become knowledgeable that it was never about the glorious temple, until you become knowledgeable that it was never about your political or or geopolitical power or your influence, it was never about any of those things. 
I only want you. And until you come to that place, I am going to continue to remove you from all of the things that get in the way of me being able to have that relationship with you. I foretold it about when you went to be uh, slaves in Israel. I rescued you from famine. And my promise to you was this, you're going to grow and you're going to become a great nation. And in that growth and in that nation, you will think you have it figured out. And so I'm going to make you slaves for 400 years. Not as punishment. Not as, not as, as you did it all wrong and I'm going to correct this now. But because I love you so much that I'm not going to let you get so big and so powerful that you forget at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's about me. And so for 400 years, you're going to live as slaves. And then guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take you out from that and I'm going to deliver that. And I've got a promise for you. But even in the midst of that, they long for Egypt And they don't believe that what he has said is true. So guess what they do? They wander. And the reality is, is that if if you if you've ever been to the promised land or you know to the Holy Land or if you've ever seen it on a map, it's like this big. When, When you look at the land mass of where the children of Israel wandered after they left Egypt, it's nothing. It they weren't lost. It wasn't that the, that, the, that the wilderness was so expansive that they couldn't find their way to the Jordan. It's that even after they had been delivered after 400 years, they still didn't believe that what God was after was their prosperity and their safety and their deliverance in him. And so get, they, they walk in circles for 40 years. And God just says, hey, listen, you keep doing that for as long as you want to. But if you will just trust me, if you will just believe me, it's actually just right there. The promised land is just right there. And eventually they make it there and they grow and they they become powerful and, and they worship and then they forget and they forget. And here we are in 2019. And God has fulfilled every promise that he gave to us. He delivered us. He rescued us. He sent his son and it is finished. It's done. And yet we live as if we are wandering in a wilderness. We live as if nothing has been fulfilled. We live as if we can do it on our own. We are rich and we are powerful and we have the best armies and we ha- I don't need you, God. And he says, here's what I'm gonna do. Not because I wanna punish you, but because I love you so much. I love you so much that I'm not going to let you believe that this is all about you. And so I'm going to pull you out of that place and I'm going to put you over here for a little while. 
But he doesn't say, this isn't sitting in a corner. <laughs> this isn't the timeout chair. This isn't any of those things. This is learn to live again, knowing that the plans that I have for you are greater than any of the plans that you could craft for yourself. And from the moment you stood at the tree in the garden and you believed the lie that I didn't love you enough to provide everything for you that you could ever need, that you believed the lie that you had to know what I knew, that you had to be like me in order to live. From that very moment, you have done nothing but walk in these cycles of freedom and exile, freedom and wilderness. And until you get to the place where you believe that what I said to you on the day that I created you, that you are good. You are good because I created you and you were made in my image. And until you believe that, we're just going to keep going just like this. Because at the end of the day, what I'm not after is your power. At the end of the day, what I'm not after is whether or not you are wealthy and everybody fears you or wants to be like you or any of those things. What I'm after is your heart. What I'm after is that you will for once and for all believe me that I am good. And as a result of that, I will make sure that you are good. And the challenge in that is that I want to do it myself. I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. I even want to be responsible for the mistakes that I make because then I don't have to attribute them to anything else other than me. But what God says is, no, I'm going to pull you aside one more time until you can see that what I'm after is you. And so he says, I want you to settle here. I want you to live your life. And you know what? I even want you to work for the prosperity of the city. Now, that seems really counterproductive, right? That, that I would want my captors, that I would want my enemies to prosper. And Jesus says, no, no, no. A rising tide lifts all boats, friends. So when the city prospers, you prosper. Because the enemy is not your captors. The enemy is the one who's vying with me for your attention. And for some reason, even though I'm the only one who's ever delivered you, you turn your eyes to that enemy all the time. And so what we have to accept is this, that when we get to this place, the Lord says, there's also a time frame on this. You see, I'm not going to just drop you off here. Because at the end of the day, this is not about harming you. This is that old adage that parents say, right? This is hurting me more than it's hurting you, right? I never understood that until I became a parent. Because what I really want is to just give my children everything. Because I want them to love me. Because I want them to think that I'm the greatest thing on the face of the planet. But what I discover is that when I don't also offer that correction, I'm actually harming them and not helping them. 
that I'm actually placing them in a hell that's greater than the exile that they might be in. And all of a sudden I get it, right? This is hurting me more than it's hurting you. And so part of what we have to accept in this place is that exile is more about our relationship with God than it is about our comfort, our freedom, or our prosperity. And what God says here is that there's a time frame on this. And the reality is I'm going to come for you. And all of the things I've promised you are going to come true. And they do. But it's never, ever going to be the same again. There is no make Israel great again plan in this. Because even after they come out of exile and they build the second temple... When we pick up in the New Testament, they're occupied again. It's never going to be the same. Because every time we choose our own luxury over our relationship with Jesus, every time we choose our own way, we miss out. We change, and the land changes. And yet his promise is still there. I'm going to bring you home again. I'm going to bring you home again. So by the time we get to Jeremiah 29, 11, and he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not disaster, to give you a hope and a future. It's not about escape. Instead, it's victory in acceptance. Acceptance of the truth that it's in those days when you pray, I will listen. In those days when you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. That's the victory in the wilderness. That's the resurrection. It's accepting the truth that God loves you so much that he is willing to put you in exile. He's willing to let you wander because he's not going to leave you to your own devices. So victory is an acceptance of the truth. Victory is also then in obedience. Victory is being willing to set aside our own plans and control. (laughs) But victory is also in the seeking and the asking and the waiting. Right about 15 years ago, um, my husband and I had just gotten married We were finishing up graduate school programs and starting our life, and we were near family, and we were living in Virginia, and we thought we had it all together, had a little money in our pocket. We lived in a beautiful historic brownstone. I had an offer from the U.S. government to come and teach communication, and he was going to go on staff at his dad's church, and within six months, all of those things dissipated. The board at the church decided that they had never heard of a father and son working together. The contract that I had never got funded by Congress, and so the job dissipated. And all of a sudden, we had an eviction notice on our apartment because it was the height of the real estate market. And the owner of the building decided rent was not making him prosperous enough, and he was going to sell the building, and they were going to turn it into condos and, and sell it off. And all of a sudden, we had no jobs. We had no place to live. We didn't know where we were going. And so I started to make some phone calls, and 
Um, one of those phone calls was to the then president of the seminary in Springfield, a, a guy named Dr. Byron Klaus, who had been an undergraduate professor of mine. And he said, I think you need to come to Springfield. And my husband said, over my dead body, am I going to Springfield, Missouri? He had spent a little time there, wasn't a place he wanted to go back to. And one weekend, he, we got up on, on a Saturday morning and he said, you know, maybe, maybe we should just go see what Springfield looks like. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to lay out before the Lord all of the things that have to happen in order for us to go there. And, and I think in all of our human wisdom, we thought we had outsmarted God, right? So one of us needs a job, we need a place to live, and we got to have some sort of financial aid for my husband to go to the seminary because we don't have any of those things. We, we, we've lost everything that we thought that we had. And so here's what we're going to put out before you. Well, within 48 hours, each one of those things had come to pass. I had a job, we had a place to live, and there was money to go to the seminary. And so we were like, great, this is in fact the promised land. We'll go for two years, we'll get a seminary degree, we'll come back to Virginia, and we'll pick up our life right where we left it. Nine years, two kids, two dogs, and a house later, and we wondered, why here? Why did you take us away from everyone and everything that we loved? Why did you make it seem as if this was the miracle. This is not where we want to be. It felt like exile. And then this verse about building homes and planting gardens showed up. And we had to make the conscious decision to live there. If this is where God has us, then we're going to stay in Springfield, Missouri for the rest of our lives. Oh, Jesus, help <laughs> Right? Okay. And I remember saying to my husband, even at that time, if, okay, fine, if this is where we're going to live, I'll live in a really small house in the city, but we got to get a lake house because I got I to gotta, I gotta be near the water. I got to have some. I can't not forever. I can't be here forever because this isn't the promise that you gave me. And then the miracle came. And a job offer in the land of prosperity, Southern California, opens up, right? This is the dream job. This is the one that you've worked so hard for. This is the one that offers all of the promises of years and years of hard work. Only it should have occurred to me that where we were being moved into Southern California is a literal desert. So yeah, we had escaped from Egypt land, we were no longer living in that place where it felt like oppression, where it felt like we were never going to survive and thrive. But guess what? Now I'm going to put you out in the desert, and I'm going to see whether or not you're still going to believe everything that I said to you. And let me tell you, it's been financial loss. It's been loss of connection. It's been loss of resources of every kind. It's been depression. It's been every negative thing. And let me tell you about what family and friends' great advice is. You got to leave California. You got to get out of there. Yeah, 
I think that sounds like an excellent idea. What job would you like me to go to? Where are we going to live? Who's going to help us? You see, because when you're in the wilderness and you're in exile, everybody has the answers for how you're going to get out of it. Everybody has the, if you just did this, this is the way it would work out. And a year ago, the Lord said to me, you can wander for as long as you want to. But if you trust me, it's right over there. And yet in that year, greater destruction has come. And I tell you what, I've spent this year on my knees saying, how long, oh Lord? Why did you bring us here to drop us off? Never, ever has Springfield, Missouri looked so lovely. Because it's always easier to be a slave than it is to live in freedom. So I didn't want to give this message this morning because I don't have some hope-filled answer for what the end looks like. What I have is the promise. What I have is the promise that I know the plans that my God has for me. I know that he does not seek my destruction, but there is somebody who does, and that person is very real. But that battle is not between me and my husband, and that battle is not between me and Christian higher education, and that battle is not between licensure agencies that we're fighting with, and that battle is not between me and my kids. That battle is between principalities and powers that want nothing more than to see us quit in the land of exile. That to see us say, I would rather be a Babylonian than believe that the things that you have given me are true. I would rather cozy up to the powers of this world because at least I feel powerful. I would rather sacrifice everything about that, you, that you've promised me because it just makes it feel easier than it is to just stay. I don't have an answer for how long it is. But here's what I know. God is more interested in my formation than he is in my comfort. He's more interested in whom I'm becoming than what the end result is. Because at the end of the day, what he's more interested in is my relationship with him. You see, it's not about what kind of house I own. It's not about where my kids go to school. It, it's not about whether or not I get to hang out with my mom on the weekends. All good things. All things I would love to have in my life. It's about whether or not my relationship with the Lord is the number one thing in my life. It's about whether or not I am looking to the only source of my prosperity there is out there. My formation is what he's after, not my comfort. He does have plans for me, but they're not my plans. They're not the next promotion. They're not the next job. They're not the next thing. You see, the victory is not in what comes after exile. The victory 
is in the waiting. The victory is learning to live in that space between what is now and not yet. So victory looks like intimacy with God. Even when you can't find him. Because it's when you seek me. It's in that wholehearted prayer that I will be found. Victory is dying to self. It's dying to self. And all throughout the rest of the scripture, that's what we see, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. You got challenges in your marriage and you're not getting spaces where you think, guys, that your wife is leading the life that she needs to lead. You want her to submit to you and to give to you one piece of advice, die. (laughs) Because when you are dying, that's what Jesus did for the church. And it's not literal physical death, but it's death to ego and it's death to pride and it's death to all of the cultural expectations of what a man is supposed to be and supposed to look like. And guess what? When you're doing those things, those women in your life, your wife, your daughters, those people are are like, that is the one I want to follow. Not the strongest, not the most powerful, not the one who's got it all together, the one who's dying because it's easy to follow that person. But when I get my eyes off of Jesus and remember that that's what he did for me, then I'm right back in that place of bondage again. Because it's also easy to follow Jesus when I remember that that's what he did. He died for me. But it's also dying to my own self, my own pride, my own ego. Because in that mutuality, that's where those relationships are. Victory is in the way in which God shows himself. I've gone way over. I'm sorry about that. There is a promise in all of this that God says, listen, when you do these things, when you seek me, when you come after me, I will be found. He's not hiding from us. In fact, he's right there. And it's not even that he's silent. It's that the reality is, is we're not listening. Because it's not in the fire. And it's not in the wind. It's in that still, small voice that says, I've got you. And so I will be found by you from the Lord. And he says, I will end your captivity. And I will gather you and restore your fortunes. And I will bring you home again. It's never going to be what it was. But it can be even better. Because it will be home with me. And so there's validity in the prayer. But it's not waiting for God to answer the length of time. I would love it if God would say to me, you got another two years, right? Just hang on for two more years. I don't know what that looks like. Because the how long, I have the answer for that. How long, O Lord? Until you seek me. How long, O Lord? 
until you earnestly pray. How long, O Lord, until you die to yourself? How long, O Lord, until you're willing to believe that the things that I've said to you are true? I love you. I love you. I love you more than anything on this planet. I love you. And when you believe that and you live like that is true, I will restore it all to you. Because I'm not withholding anything from you. It's all right here. You can wander for as long as you want to. But I'm here, right now, here today, waiting. And so we're not actually looking for God to answer that question. He's waiting for us to answer that question. And so I want to pray for you today that wherever your wilderness is, wherever your exile is, whatever it is that's being stripped away from you, it is not punishment. It is not because God wants to show you. It is because he loves you so much that he doesn't want anything in the way of his ability to prosper you and his ability to show you just how good it is to sit in the lap of God's grace. And if we would just believe him, the promised land is just right there. It's right there. Let's pray. God, forgive us that our attention is bifurcated that I think that what you want me to pay attention to is how hard I'm working, that I want you to pay attention to just how much I'm doing for you. Forgive us for thinking that if I just behave in a certain way, if I just act in a certain way, if I just do certain things, then you will love me. <laughs> Because the lie is, is that you love me no matter what. And yet I don't believe you. God, forgive me. Forgive us, Lord. But God, let us look around at the ways in which even our exile, even our wilderness, is a demonstration of that love for us that you loved us so much that you were willing to pull us out of the place of our own prosperity to be able to say it was never about the temple in the first place. It was always about me and you. It was never about power. It was always about me and you. It was never about influence. It was always about me and you. And God, help us today to seek you with all of our hearts so that all of these other things can be added to us. God, teach us to pray earnestly 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me not live in the mindset that if I could just escape this life, then it would all be okay. But in fact, what you want is my life right now. And so God, I commit again here in this place to remain even in exile, to build houses, to have children, to plant gardens, to pray for the prosperity of the city of Longmont, God, because if the city prospers, Reve will prosper. That even here in this place, Lord, that what you're after is my heart. That what you're after is our heart. And if we would just turn our hearts to you, it would not be escape, but in fact the veil would be lifted and we would see that your kingdom is right here, right now, available to us. And so let us turn our hearts to that place, Lord, where once and for all we truly believe that we were made in your image for relationship with you and that we are good, God, because you are good. And when we believe that, that is heaven. Thank you, Jesus. In your precious name, amen.